0: Welcome to the Friday Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today I'm talking about golf course architecture with a U.S. amateur winner. Given that concept, my guest could pretty much be no one except for Richie Ramsey. Richie is a Scottish pro who won the 2006 U.S. amateur at Hazeltine. He's also a four-time winner on the DP World Tour, most recently at the Kazoo Classic last September at Hillside Golf Club. He's also super passionate about golf architecture, makes a point to go out and see courses wherever he might be, and he always has compelling things to say about those experiences. It's it's pretty rare in in his profession. Super thoughtful guy, and I thought it was just time to get him on the podcast and have a wide-ranging chat about whatever he's interested in. The last time Richie was on the fried egg, it was January 2018, way back on episode 70 with Andy Johnson. So it's been a while. There's a lot to talk about. We're going to cover Richie's recent trip to Minnesota, where he saw a bunch of cool courses and stopped by Hazeltine, which will soon be undergoing a, quote, reimagining by Davis Love's architecture firm. We'll also address the recent changes in the world of professional golf and how Richie thinks all of that will affect the DP World Tour. And finally, we'll touch on Walton Heath, which is the venue of this week's Women's Open. Totally fascinating course that Richie has a ton of experience with. All right, that's what we have in store for you. After this break, you'll hear from Richie Ramsey. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I've never been very good at sticking to a routine with vitamins or pills, but now I just drink AG1 in the morning before my first cup of coffee, and it immediately clears my head and makes me feel like I've done something good for my body right off the bat. I started drinking AG1 a few months ago, and one thing I've really appreciated is how easy it is to stick to a routine. One thing that AG1 does is provide these travel packs and Basically, when I'm on the road, which I often am, I bring the travel packs with me and I'm able to adhere to my routine, even though I'm out of all of my normal routines. That's normally a time when, you know, vitamins and and stuff like that, that I know I should be doing every day, exercise, eating well, that's when that all goes out the window when I'm away from home. But with AG1, it's just so simple. You take a travel pack, you add it to some water, you shake it up a little bit you drink it, and you start your day feeling really confident that you've covered your nutritional bases. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. That's drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. Richie Ramsey, welcome back to the Fried Egg Podcast. I understand that you're in Minneapolis at the moment. What are you up to there?
1: Yeah, just um, kind of found my holiday. Uh, my wife's from Chaska, uh, which is is five, ten minutes down the road from Hazeltine National. So um, yeah, just, just out here enjoying the heat, which is good to be having too much heat in the UK over that you saw that at the Open. And then managing to play a, a few rounds of golf, which is nice, but the first sort of 10, 12 days of clubs away, chill, just go to the gym, spend a bit of time, spend a bit of time at home.
0: Nice. Um, so you actually won the US Amateur at Hazeltine back yeah. in 2006. Uh-huh. So, you know, when you think of that experience, when you remember that experience, what what comes to mind?
1: Um, yeah, a lot of emotions, obviously. Incredible week for me. Um, very cool week because there was a lot of boys from the Walker Cup squad and GB and I guys are out there. Um, and uh, yeah, just just remember like sixteen at the end, just like sort of bit of a shock, you know. It's kind of sometimes things hit you and it hits you pretty, uh, hits you pretty quickly. And then of course when you get the trophy, when you get a minute just to look at it, it and you you see the names, particularly the names, hit you. And it's like, wow! This is like once my name goes on it, like you cannot take this off. And you, you know, I'm not saying I'm uh, a world beater, but just the fact that um, you know, Tiger Mickelson, and then you go further back when you've got people like Jones and stuff on there. That's you're you're, you're kind of very honored and probably humbled to have your name put in history with the same. Names is that really so? It was it was very very cool.
0: Now I know Hazeltine is planning on a uh, what they're calling a reimagining of the course. Uh, Davis Love is going to oversee that work. I'm not sure if you have any insight into what's going on there, but I just wanted to let people know that that's happening. That's I guess that's sort of a big story. It's a it's a major championship course, and um, I guess they're going to kind of go a different direction there have have you have you seen anything about that or gotten any insight into that
1: yeah i mean i was at the club the other day um and and hazel team put a video just announcing um that davis was was on board um i think that you know they've got the u.s amateur i believe next year Ryder cup in 2029 so i think they're looking at Obviously, US Amateur is a nice maybe data collection to see where people are hitting it, especially, you know, all these young kids hitting it so far. And then just bringing the course, I, th- I would like to think, you know, t- touching up in places, not a, not a massive overhaul, I, I don't expect from a routing perspective, but things like, you are know, looking at position of bunkers, maybe character of bunkers, maybe edges of bunkers um you know green complexes have they come in pinnable areas places where you could maybe just i would like to think push push it out a little bit to create some harder pin positions and really bring the bunkers more into play but um yeah i haven't really seen any solo plans um but yeah it's a big championship golf course they're very very lucky or lucky they're smart that they've got land around uh the last few holes with regards to hospitality so it really fits in very well for a, a major championship and i wasn't at the last of cup but i believe you know so many people come out because they have such a short window right it's like so many people come out and support the event um and, and, and any, any really sporting event during the summer is is um, well received and and well supported so that's a big thing for anything that comes into town
0: yeah at Ryder cup venues the space considerations are always a huge deal you know there are so many courses out there that have hosted Ryder cups before that probably couldn't anymore you know like that like kiowa yeah. for instance which obviously just hosted a pga championship so it's no slouch in terms of space and infrastructure but yeah, you know, they hosted a Ryder Cup in 1992 and I'm not sure they they could do it again. So, I guess that must be a a big consideration for Hazel team. Like we got to be able to get all these people in here all at once.
1: Yeah, it's like you you've got to get them in and you've got to get them out. Um, you know, it was interesting to me. I went to the Ryder Cup at Glad Eagles and like Glen Eagles has huge banks on the side. Um, And I was like, oh, this is going to be brilliant viewing. But when you get four games and you've got, I don't know, know, thousands of people in there, you really need those banks to fill. It creates a cool atmosphere, um, but you, you need those high viewpoints to see what's going on. And it was amazing. Just, I mean, Glen Eagles, from an infrastructure perspective, was ideal train station, motorway. Um, you know, getting people in and out the players stay on site, but yeah, that's quite interesting how you you build something so there's a flow that you can get people around the course viewing is 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 a huge issue, and also you want to create an element of drama you know particularly on those particularly on the probably the back nine so I'm sure all those things are considerations that will take into play and and uh maybe less pins in the middle of the greens more on the sides. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's always a hope. Yeah. I mean, yeah. For the love of God, you know, please, please, please expand out the green so you, you can, you can get the pins out there and, and actually, uh, you know, present some challenges that way. Um, so you've been in the States for, uh, a, a few days, as I understand it, a, a little while. I, what other courses have, have you seen? You know, you're a guy who's, who's interested in architecture as anybody who, who follows you on social media knows, um, yeah. you like to go see interesting courses, uh, what have you seen, and what have been some of your thoughts on what you've seen?
1: Yeah, so uh, like randomly drove went for dinner the other night. Drove past a uh, diner country club, um, which is not is not far. It's just sort of southwest of the uh, center of Minneapolis. Um, just had a little look, and I was quite interested. So, googled it, found out randomly that um, Tom Bendelow, who I think people refer to him as like the Johnny Appleseed or something of golf. Yeah. The Johnny Appleseed of golf. Yeah. Uh,
0: cause he, cause he just like went around the country, uh, you know, staking out golf courses in the early days. Like he's responsible for so many, uh, you know, of the initial iterations of golf courses.
1: Yeah. I believe he was the, the person who built the first public course in the Bronx. Um, so he was a Royal Aberdeen member um emigrated over to america and it kind of came from there so i was like oh this would be cool went there the, the the guys there were really really welcome and played with two junior members like 13 14 and uh, one of the assistants so a nice game of them but some really cool features i think Lehman came in tom Lehman and someone else came in and changed a few things but the the routing is the same and i just thought like the way he works it through through the there's a little kind of valley um, and then he goes up onto the high points some really cool movement in the land i love like the you've got these long sort of angled bunkers squared off um they're really cool a brilliant uh, favorite hole in the the course was um was number eleven he played this par five into the corner Green is pitched up and then it sweeps off. There's a big drop off back right, and then it's all short grass going into the tee on eleven. Then you turn around and this fantastic green that sits up at you with two bunkers into the right, and it's sort of very difficult to judge depth perception because there's, there's there's nothing behind it, and then runoffs down the left, and it was and it's just angled at you for a right hander, just a nightmare. Thinking, you know, thinking really on the angle that twelve is at Augusta, where, you know, if you just don't, if you leak it, it's in the bunker, difficult. Now, if you pull it, it's going down the runoff and away. Um, quick greens, that was really cool. Played White Bear Yacht Club, which, like, blew me away. As like, just stood in the first hole and I was like, the scale is off the charts. I was thinking, the other thing I place a good picture of it i've never been there is yale golf yes. course you compare it's a it great to.
0: comparison yeah, yeah the land forms are, are kind of similar in some ways yeah
1: if if anybody's out there listen to this if you ever get the chance please go and play it because it just will, will not disappoint you i think it's the best course i mean i did some research before i came out here and found out about it but it's the best course i've never heard of prior to coming out here just this, the scales off the charts, the movement in the land is incredible. Some of the greens are wild. You know, even the, the first green, I, I hit like a wedge in there, got up there, and I'm like 15 foot. And I'm like, how do I stop this? There's a huge bank at the back. It's kind of blind at the front. Massive valley that falls away into like a flatbed bunker. Um, nine is a incredible hole. Um, up high, par five, you hit to this sort of down into this plateau, and then the fairway falls away from you, and you kind of hit over that, over another hill, and you can run it in from 50, 60 yards short, and then 12 was absolutely off the charts, but then you start, start looking at it and seeing stuff, I'm like, right, okay, I see Scotland in it a bit, I see it's feeding in, like, um, some of the holes with you know very much a lot of the holes you're blind coming in you can see the top of the flag and then you get up there and then there's all these slopes and you're and you're thinking well i could go straight to the pin but i could hit it 12 yards right and it'll bank in off the off the slope that was that was really cool and then another highlighted trip i got to go and see uh andrew green at interlaken he was really kind he's obviously a very busy guy connected with him on social. And I said, you know, I'm in town. I, w- I would just love to come out and see it. But to see the site in progress was brilliant. Some of his ideas, his passion was incredible. His knowledge, you know, was off the charts. Um, and I think I can only imagine good things will come from that.
0: Yeah. Andrew Green's one of the best and yeah he's out there at Interlocken you know do, doing his thing he's he's one of the leading restoration architects in America right now and uh, Interlocken is is going to be pretty cool it's been out of the championship rotation for a while i'm not sure if the club has you know ambitions or plans to kind of get back into that mix of courses but you know certainly bringing in Andrew Green tends to be one of the first steps that clubs take in moving that direction. Um, so we'll see, but it's a pretty cool piece of land, right? It's uh, like, you know, a, a fantastic piece of land. In fact,
1: Minneapolis is funny when you, from a, from our uh, from a Scott, normally when you look at land, there's normally quite a lot of, let's say hills slash, slash small Monroe's mountains that you can see Minneapolis looks on, the, on the face of it quite flat when You look in the sort of skyline, you look away, it's, it's relatively flat, but there is quite a bit of movement in the ground. Um, and you see that at Interlaken, you see that at Dyna, you know, it's rolling at Hazeltine. I didn't get to play Woodhill, which was on the list. Uh, Brian Schneider, uh, was very kind, and, and I think he's doing some restoration work there. Minakada the as well, up the road, that's in Don Ross, but mm-hmm. yeah, Interlaken has some cool movement, you know. I just think. I'm not going to go into too much detail, and give away secrets, but I just thought there was a there was a a few bunkers that I was just like, wow, this is this is brilliant, Uh, and just it's taking all that history, all that research that he, I think he spent nearly a year doing, um, and just bringing it to life, and probably the other thing, as much as I enjoy the golf course architecture, I do love. The buildings and living in Edinburgh, I'm, I'm very uh, fortunate to to see that all the time, but uh, the clubhouse, both um, oh, at diner, the restoration they'd done in some of the rooms upstairs and at Interlaken was, was absolutely first class. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful setting and, um, and, and nice golf courses to go with it.
0: I think minneapolis is is one of the most interesting golf cities in America for sure, and a lot of the work that they've been doing recently is sort of raising its status i think even more you know at in, in Shaska, uh where 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 you technically are right now i believe um in shaska they're they're doing a really cool short course project called the the loop at shaska uh Ben Warren an arch- a young architect is is sort of overseeing that work and I think it's going to be really fun when they're able to open that course. So that's another thing to keep an eye on, um, in, in that area. Um, all right. So, so shifting gears a little bit, talking about, you know, how your play has been recently, uh, you've been, you've had a lot of really good performances recently, yeah. uh, you know, this, uh, there's, there's a bit of a, a resurgence going on in your career, which has been really good to see. So, you know, last year, you won on the DP World Tour for the first time in a few years, and I thought it was very appropriate that the win came at an architecturally interesting golf course, <laughs> which was yeah. uh, Hillside Golf Club. Um, so tell me, like, what what do you like about Hillside, and why do you think you you play well there?
1: Hillside uh, is, is right beside uh, Royal Bertdale, um in Southport, and first played there when I was sixteen, and was kind of like. Growing up at Rothera Dean, it's very much you, you you're hitting through valleys and you've got the dunes that come in. Particularly on the back nine at hillside, that's that's very very similar. You know, this again we talk about scale. Uh, the scale of the of the dunes at the side is really really impressive. Um, the club is very very welcome. The members were great. They've put on a few tournaments over the last few years, and I think all the players enjoyed the challenge it moves, it's not a traditional link, so it goes out and back. So it a lot of the holes move in different directions and it kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, the best example of that is like Muirfield with the the clockwise and the anti-clockwise loops. It, it never lets you settle, which I think is quite good. There's a few holes that play in similar direction, but particularly in the back nine, it's every different direction. I had that in my mind. 'Cause I, I'm quite I'm not the longest player in the world, but when we played the back nine, particularly on the final day, I knew that it was straight and I could shape it holding it into the wind right to left or, you know, holding it the wind left to right. So I was fine moving the ball either way and that knowing that having that that was coming at me, I was more happy or more comfortable doing it than probably maybe some other players. Uh, in the field, but just uh, I just enjoy the movement in the ground. It's very natural. The greens are relatively flat, so the internal contour is relatively flat, which makes it very playable for members, particularly when it gets windy. But there's a lot of external contours. That's something that I learned a little bit about when I were building Castle Stewart, about that idea, and I like that idea because it makes it very playable for everybody. But there's also roots to get into the green, and it's still a challenge for the the best players, uh, which it turned out to be. I think the winning score was 14 under. It's just a fun course to play. And you play pretty much through the, your bag. The only thing you would say is that with technology, the fours that were more of a challenge and maybe some of the corners the guys can cut, you know, it'd be great to see you know, maybe five, four irons come in some of those greens, which can take four and five irons. You can land them short and run them in. Um, But definitely a place where there's options off the tee. You can play aggressive if you want, but you're going to have an element of risk um, coupled with that aggressive nature. So a thinker's course, and when it played relatively firm and fast, that's why that's why I enjoy, because everything becomes smaller. You've got to, be tighter with your dispersion. You've got to be tighter with your approach play and makes missing greens, uh, a lot harder.
0: Was, was it that win that qualified you for, for the open championship?
1: Um, it was, uh, so it kind of part of, part of it, it was finishing top 30 in race Dubai gives you, gives you a spot in the open. Um, that's something that obviously is quite special to me again. I always look forward to links golf, particularly on courses that I kind of in, enjoy I, There's definitely something, a relationship between courses where I stand on the first tee and I'm like, I'm looking forward to the walk and how I play definitely sort of is elevated because of that. And I just, you know, like white bear yesterday, you know, the, the front nine, I didn't play that great, but, I was just looking around and I was like, this is this is very, very cool. And it's all those courses that make sense to me from a strategic viewpoint, you know, like where the bunkers are, um, like I say, different, different routes into the hole, how we play holes differently from one day to the other, um, options, uh, land movement scale, all those things that kind of, if you're soaking up and getting hit by them all the time, it elevates the experience for me, um, and when things make sense from a strategic point of view, um, that really that really helps me. Because um, everybody knows that if you put a bunker on the left and a bunker on the right, well, where'd you hit it? Well, you hit it between the two. Whereas if you if you stagger them and change it, um, and you have slopes attached and sort of the slopes kicking at the bunkers, you really got to think a lot more, and that that's why I enjoy.
0: Yeah, well, you got some of that at, at Hoylake, uh, certainly when you when you played in the open, and you got to tee off in the first group. Uh, I was I was yeah. uh, watching it was late at night on the West Coast, uh, where I was, I always like to stay up late on the first night and kind of watch what happens in those initial groups. And I was delighted to see you uh, show up in that first group alongside the the local hero, uh, Matt, uh, Matthew Jordan. And so you know, take me through that experience. What What was it like to be in that first group off in the open? Like, that's a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah, well, first off, I'm going to bed at 7.20 the night before because you're up. <laughs> but yeah, obviously, uh, playing with Brandon, who I know as well, but the, the sort of, um, you could maybe say it was the Jordan effect and not the, um, the amount of people that were there. Just the fact that it's the first tee, his home club. Um, there was and it's a real, it's quite a cool walk. You walk over the bridge, down through the sort of like a tunnel, and it, it's funny how we talk about architecture sometimes and talk about kind of compressing and releasing in some golf courses and the the way the R N A have done that with the first tee setup was quite cool. We come in through a tunnel, and then you walk in and it's really tight around the tee, but quite vertical. Um, and even when you walked on the tee, there was a great round of applause and the fairway was lined. And, and that was very cool. That's something that I'll remember, uh, for a long, long time. Um, you get goosebumps. I try to forget the first tee, the the actual way I hit the first tee shot, but the experience, um, up to there was, was really, really good. And, and just a a cool thing to sort of add to my CV that I've, I've done and experienced. And, um, yeah it was something that when you've got crowds like that and a, a kind of special tournament it really elevates the experience and the the feelings the noise you know the goosebumps and stuff like that it it was very very cool.
0: So from your perspective what makes Royal Liverpool so challenging?
1: I would say the the, the bunkering is a big thing. You know you see a lot of people were playing that sideways. I mean I played out sideways or backwards three times um so the the penalty for hitting it in the bunker is severe that first of all that and and that plays into your mental perspective because you you know it's there because you know it's a shot it's it it plays into the way you swing the club um as opposed to a standard tour course where you're like well i can just swing away if i go in the bunker it's probably better than being in the rough so that element to it is quite big i think there's a lot of holes where you're you're partially sighted. You know, whether you're hitting over a bunker or you can't see the bottom of the flag. Um, uh, particularly on the back nine, when you when you play those holes that go down and come back up, you're playing on that that's well not the water's edge, but you you're generally hitting it um down towards the bunkers, you're playing up towards the greens. So those runoffs at the side play into it. Um, and and you're hitting into greens that are sitting in the back nine, long and generally quite narrow off a side to lie, and then you add wind into it. So you've got slopes that are feeding everything off. You've got a side to lie, which you've got to manage, and that's if you get past the bunkers, and then you add wind into it. So all the combinations make it quite tricky. I would say you have to shape the ball quite a bit There's a lot of holes where, I mean, I I felt myself like, okay, on this one, I'm going to hit a little fade and hold it into the wind just to stop the ball running across the fairways. And then when you get on the back nine, you you kind of feel like, okay, I've maybe hit a couple of fades to hold it into the wind. And then you get on the holes coming home, and if the wind was turning into off the left, it would suit someone who could hit a nice draw and hold it in. Because if you can't hold it, even if you hit a straight shot, the wind is pushing it and it's just funneling into those bunkers all day long. And and I, I'm the kind of person that if I would see a left or right slope, it wasn't that f- firm because it did rain. Um, but if I see a left or right slope, I'm trying to feel like I want to hit a draw into it to hold it because I know that anything that's left or right, it's just funneling away from you. So it was... It was a little bit unfortunate that those slopes didn't come to life because of the fact that you had the rain. But I think all those little combinations, uh, and it it kind of stops you all with sometimes hitting driver as well. That's probably one thing, particularly for the longer players, if you play it with even just a little bit of wind, you actually don't have to hit driver that much um, if you're trying to pick it apart. Mm. And if you do hit driver like I said, a little bit like Hillside, there is the relevant amount relevant amount of risk that there should be. There's a couple holes, though, if you're really long, like two, three, four, five, six, seven, that if you can get over the bunkers, it's a massive advantage because you get the angle, like two, you saw that shot that Rory hit where he almost got relief from the grandstand. He just, he's like, I'm taking the bunkers out of play, smash it down the right. And then you've got a direct line up the green with a wedge in your hand. So I'm sure the data, I would be very interested to see data collection points on that and scoring relevant to that because some of the bunkering is at times can be quite symmetrical. So I would, I would see, I'd be interested to see what they do with that. Um, Two, seven, and 15 bunker placement you can i played with kirk at Yama. he hits it pretty far and yeah, i he could does. see what he, i could see what he was doing you know which takes that element of strategy out because i'm like it was like here's all the strategy right but if i can hit it here i take it all out of play right uh, so i think there's definite scope to improve the course and make it make it harder and make that strategy element come into play a bit more
0: yeah, I mean, it, it shows you how hard it is to keep up with distance gains when you don't have trees all over the course, right? Because, you know, you can use trees to kind of dictate how players play a course, which makes it less interesting, right? It, you don't have the same freedom of play, but that's one way to keep... Rory from blasting it over everything. And I saw him do that a couple of times. It may have been on two, it may have been on four, but one day, I think it was on Saturday, he just hit it 30 yards farther than everybody else and hit it over everything (laughs) and had a little flip wedge into a hole that should be long and hard. And I was just like, man, that is, you know, this is a course, yes, where some precision is really important. But there are a couple of holes where, if you have that extra gear of Rory type power, then man is is that a huge advantage?
1: Yeah, because you're because people hit it are hitting it into the same spot. You can you can definitely see why Tiger won there, and he just took the viewpoint right. I'm going to play from here, but that played to his strengths because he's obviously um, I don't know the stats, but he was a fantastic uh, iron player. Particularly yeah, from, I mean,
0: best of all time, more than likely.
1: Yeah, middle to long distance. And I bet he was like, oh, this is great. right? You guys hit it all here, and then I'm just going to beat you from here because I know I'm the best. And obviously, absolutely fantastic putter as well. Um, and then when Rory Rory won at Hoylake, Lake, yes, it was slightly different, but I could see where it was like if you have three bunkers, he knew that maybe – I see only one of them is in play for me. I just need to worry about that one and I can either challenge it, potentially try and get over it if I hit it really good or take it out of play by hitting it down one side. So yeah, that, that staggered bunker system, I'd like to see a little bit more and it, it would just challenge the whole of the field more um, and it would give you, particularly on holes like two, it would give you so many more options so instead of just like short of the bunkers and long of the bunkers it would be like right okay well i can go short i can go over the first one and short of the last one to get the angle and have an easier shot in but i'm taking on more risk and then if you push that second bunker on the right further up then the question that i'm being asked is the same question that that roy is being asked as opposed to he's like well i'll just take it out the difference between his drive and my drive, then you're you're talking seventy, eighty yards, um, and that's a huge gap to fill.
0: Yeah, very very tricky problem for course setup teams right now, and for architects. So, um, I'll be curious to see how they handle it at Hoylake. I mean, I'm sure that there are some things that they want to address before the next time an Open comes back there. But the course in general, especially since we didn't get the the weather we were expecting, except for on Friday. Which was wonderful to watch. The course held up pretty well overall. You you had some you had some great moments of play at Royal Liverpool yourself. I mean you you had some you had some uh, you know stretches of those rounds where you were playing really really good golf. Your final round you know wasn't your best, but I would imagine that uh-huh. there's some stuff that you're going to take away from your performance at Royal Liverpool and kind of take into the rest of the season on the DP World Tour. Do you have thoughts about that?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I would say that, um, you know, a lot of people do say it, but like James Bledge and his team did a a brilliant job in setting up the course. You know, the weather is not controllable, so you can only present the course in the best possible way, and I think think they did a really, really good job of that. My game was, was really funny. I went through spells where I played... The way I think I should play, very very steady, and then had a couple of just shots where even yeah. I was like, "Where did that come from? That is few choice words to myself." It was very much like, "What the eh, are you doing here?" and and that kind of derailed me. I didn't get off to the best of starts. Obviously, the one, two, three, it's a tricky start at like, and I think if you gave any player on that field right? You're going to be level par after three, you take it. But at the same time, I feel like I understood what my problems were a couple of rescues off the T, you know, I came here, luckily I went to the 3M open to see the guys at Callaway, got some new clubs built for that purpose, because I want to be able to be a little bit more confident off the T with, um, like I'm very confident with driver, but more like long irons and, and, uh, and rescues off the tee. Um, so I've got some new clubs built for that. And that'll help me moving forward when I'm playing courses that are a little bit firmer and faster, and you can chase it down there, and it's more of a positional course. But the one thing I realise is that, and I've been playing golf for a long time, is that even if it's a major, just believe in your ability. Like, never stop believing in your ability. If I'm playing a monthly medal or going out and playing by myself, I just kind of go, well, it's 144, the wind's off the right, I'll hold up a nine. If I'm playing in the open, that should be the way it should be. Don't overcomplicate it. Keep it quite simple. And remember how good how good you are at golf. That sounds funny, but Scottish uh, that pessimistic outlook can sometimes uh, seep into my, my game. And that's something that I need to remember. (laughs)
0: Um, so the DP world tour, which you are a a full-time member of currently is in an interesting position. You know, this is a whole separate podcast. What's going on in the world of golf and how the DP world tour fits into it. We've talked about it a little bit on this podcast, Andy and I have, and it's very interesting, like uh, you know when you look at the strategy of how the tour is sort of positioning itself in everything that's going on, but i guess i'm I'm just curious about like what your thoughts are about where you want to see the tour go in the future. I know that's a big question, but I think you've been thinking about it
1: yeah um I mean, it's been interesting the, the last uh, few days or week to to see the Describe them as moves that have been made on the PGA Tour with regards to more player input. I mean, if you're talking about business, it it, it it's it's funny because on one hand, what you want is, at the end of the day, we're golfers. Like, you you tell me to go and hit a driver off a tee. I'm very competent in doing that, and I can go and do that. But you put yourself in a business position. That's not where we're competent, and we need to have people who are the best at what they do, which is making decisions, building strategy. Um, But at the same time, it has to come with a player involvement. And because anything that they do has a direct relationship to what we have to do, where we have to travel, uh, where we have to play, how it affects, it's going to sound funny, but how it affects families and holiday you know this this is a brilliant time i think for a lot of players because obviously we're coming up against the fedex top players are there this gives us a nice break um particularly in the middle of what i would say is like british summer um for a lot of guys in continental europe so downtime and then the back end of our season is is loaded and that that's a that's a good decision it's kind of like hold on well you guys don't want to uh, put on tournaments because all the stars are are pretty much in the fedex a lot of guys would love a break at this time of year knowing that we're gonna have a lot of tournaments coming up um that's a win-win that's where you have communication between uh both parties because you're in it together and i think sometimes that needs to be worked on there needs to be an element of trust between both parties so an element where like right guys we trust in what your ability is to go away and negotiate a good deal, which we will have to ultimately live through. But at the same time, you need to understand that that a lot of guys have played out here for a lot of time and have built up a knowledge of how things work and what suits players best and how to build a schedule that will help us almost play more and be more willing to Engage with sponsors, engage with fans, engage with um, anybody that's out there because ultimately you want the best product possible. Because if you don't have a good product, it'll die. So it's it's a tough, tough balance. And honestly, golf's a—I wouldn't say it's in turmoil, but it's it's in a place where nobody really knows what's happening at the moment. Even the players, I would I would say. Uh, and we've got to wait and see how this plays out.
0: Right. Uh, I mean, it, you know, so much is unknown right now. It, it feels funny even sort of talking about it or projecting into the future. I mean, one concrete thing that I have often thought about, and I bet you've pondered it as well, is what if there were a cooperative schedule between the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour around quote unquote links season? Links season basically doesn't exist right now but it seems like there's an obvious place for it in the run up to the Open Championship. You have the Scottish Open right now. Mm-hmm. The Irish Open has kind of switched around to different places recently and now it's in a new spot on the schedule. Do you personally see any possibility of there being like a a world tour type links schedule of some kind around the Open Championship or would that just like be too hard to Pull off
1: yeah, I mean i that there's there's difficulties and and everything when you change everything, there's going to be pros and cons, but it may not happen in the next few years, but I kind of believe that it will be a world tour um through a number of reasons is that all the guy everybody wants to attract the top players, and I think if you want the best markets possible. And the coolest places that are, that are different, The people would be like, well, actually, you know, we're playing at Kingston Heath this week or we're playing in Japan. Oh, I wonder what Japan's like. You know, I got to go to Japan this year. It's like kind of experience overload, you know, absolutely brilliant place to go to. Um, You know, it helps me grow. Sounds funny, but not just as a golfer, but as a person, when you go to these places, you know, meeting new people, trying to work, you know, translate seeing, seeing new places, uh, experiencing new cultures, um, understanding the way that other people live their lives. Those are all really good things for people to do. Um, so on a world tour, you, I think you would get that, you know, you want the stars playing there. So kids are watching them and being like, right, well, I want to follow this guy. And why well, I want to follow this guy. I grew up doing that. I was exposed to that, you know, going to the Dunhill cup every year, but a lot of countries don't have that Um, and there's fantastic places to play around the world and I just feel that it will somehow come to fruition that it will be different parts of the world whether it be a European swing a Middle Eastern swing an Asian swing it will always be dominant in America that will that will I'm pretty sure that will never change you have the three majors there and a lot of players make that their home so from a travel perspective that, that really helps. But I think there will be a big tour. There will be a combination of Corn Ferry and a few other tours that come together. Um, and then there will be a, a clear promotion and relegation from that. And maybe what they have, you know, the four tournaments at the end of the year where the guys, you know, top 25 cards or top 30 cards from the bottom switch to the, the, the main tour, which is where all the superstars play. And then maybe the next. 30 go and play a a fourth tournament playoff. Um, And then there's another 20 cards up for grabs. Um, Stuff that really, like, it's great to watch the top players, and I really enjoy that. But you also need those stories where you get a guy who's literally, he might have a putt to, to have a full card the next year to play against the top players. And maybe three years ago, he was in college, or three years ago, he was working with a pro shop. And it's like, that is life-changing for those guys. You know, um, Mikey Stewart this year played the Open. You know, I know Mikey, he's worked really hard. He's got some stats on the challenge tour, but he he was like in the top 10 at the Open. Like, that is complete game changer. That's a story. That's like, what is this guy going through? How much pressure is he under? Like, he knows that there's a carrot there at the end of the stick. It's like, if I play really well this week, like my whole world could change. And I I think people like those stories. I think there should be more of those stories. So as much as I want like a world tour and those top guys, you, you need that pathway to get guys through and, and, uh, and dangle the carrot in front of them really.
0: And from a fan's perspective, the idea of a world tour is really appealing because Fans are all over the world, for one thing. They're not just in America. And so (laughs) it would be great to bring some of the best products in professional golf to different fans around the world. And second of all, I would sort of know how to contextualize each tournament. Like, I'm interested in watching a tournament that isn't necessarily full of the absolute best players in the world. If I know that that tournament is more about qualifying for the next level i'm interested in watching that tournament you know that 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 is compelling to me but if every tournament is kind of in this little middle zone in between being elite and being a a sort of feeder event then i don't really know how to set my expectations and what to watch for but if everything has context if we have a, a set of top events and then other events that kind of qualify players for those top events then that starts to click for me and that yeah. starts to be something that i can really invest in as a fan just from from my perspective
1: yeah like we we have um well, we i say in the down england they have the obviously the the premier league which watch watches you know the huge teams, man united chelsea all, all the teams that people around the world know about But you obviously have the the playoffs, which is the league below, and I actually watch. I actually keep an eye on the playoffs because it's the golden ticket for these clubs to get into that Premier League, to change their lives, to play against to play against the best of the best, you know, to go to an Old Trafford, to go to a Stamford Bridge, to cheer on your team, you know, and those are huge, huge games, and it's sort of. But you you need the story behind that. Okay, well, where do they come from? What kind of team do they have? You know, it's like if you can bring that story along and build it and tell the fans what's going on, they understand it, it really adds to it. I mean, somebody made a good point to me talking about uh, big tournaments uh, and, and having tournaments around the world. And I said to them, well, okay, I'll give you an example. I said, in tennis, they have the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. Now, if you took the Australian Open, the French Open, and moved it to America, I said, would that be good for tennis or bad for tennis? And they were like, well, it's, it's good for us. We get, you know, it's got three majors there. And I said, yeah, but is it good for the game or good for you? And he was like, well, it's good, good for me. I said, yeah, but it, it's about the game. It's about the sport in general. So, having huge tournaments around the world will elevate your sport. I'm in mean, no doubt about that, rather than having it concentrated in one place. And that's easy for me to say because obviously I'm from Scotland. America has three majors. I understand why they have the three majors. I get that. But big, big events around the world, it's better. To have that spread around the world and engage with more fans, engage with people, and I generally think like if you can get the top players to travel, and some of them, to all their credit, they they do travel and they do go away and play in different events, um, but it does make you better as a person. You're you're more. I think you're more patient. I think you're more impatient is something that I never really had, to, and sometimes struggle with now, but it has helped me. Um, you know, and when you're older, you remember when we went to Japan, like, remember when we went to, like, we go to Crançois up the Swiss mountains. Uh, remember when we went to, you know, played the French Open and we went into Versailles to see the palace. It's like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool things to do. Um, you know, going, you know, going down to South Africa and going to Leopard Creek, you know, going into the Kruger National Park to see all the, all, all the animals. Like, Golf is really, really important, but there's other things on your doorstep when you start traveling and having that experience. So I think it's like it's it's going to be good for the fans, good for the players. It's just ha- working out how how do you schedule it, and will the, the sort of centralized nature of golf at the moment expand a little bit more um, and open up?
0: Yeah, that's the hope, and and I hope that some of the top players are willing to travel. Because that, I hope that they see some of the stuff that you're talking about. That it's that it's going to be fun. That it's going to be good for them, and it's also probably going to be good in the sense that they can expand their fan base. You know, I, I remember a number of years ago when all these NBA players all of a sudden understood, at more or less the same moment, that I can be a global superstar. I can <laughs> I can go out and have fans in in China, and that massively expands my business prospects right so just from the selfish perspective of like how big am i worldwide as opposed to how big am i in just america Uh you, you would think that this would be appealing to go to other places and to show what you're offering from an entertainment perspective so yeah, I, I really hope that uh, that some players start start to see this. Now we should we should look to wrap up pretty soon here, Richie, because I don't want to keep you for too long. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Walton Heath to give people something to look for at the upcoming AIG Women's Open, which is happening this week at Walton Heath, which is a very old and very cool golf course designed by Herbert Fowler the old course at walton heath opened in 1904 and then the new course the first nine opened in 1907 and was completed in 1913 and you know like this is this is all happening most of it is happening before the opening of of the national golf links in in america so this is like early early golden age architecture some of the first you know wave of inland golf architecture that was really terrific I know you've played Walton Heath a number of times. It's the U.S. Open qualifying site, uh, final qualifying site in the U.K. Uh, you've played some tournaments there, so maybe just give people a couple of things to look out for at the Women's Open. What's what's special about Walton Heath to you?
1: I mean, it's it's, it's a cool site. Obviously, it generally plays firm and fast. Although it's not links, there will be bounce in it, um, and there is ground game there so there's generally a route into the hole or into the green so and and it gives you that one where okay you can go at the flag but you can definitely hit it on the green but you're going to have a longer putt going at the flag the risk element goes up and then it sort of says well hold on this is where you start getting into trouble heather everywhere heather is everywhere people if you haven't experienced heather before it is nasty stuff So driving the ball, keeping it in play will be really, really important. There is a few tilted fairways. So with firm and fast tilted fairways, you've got to be mindful of where you land the ball. Um, The women are obviously experts at at being accurate off the tee, but definitely that plays into it. You wouldn't think it, but every time I've played there, the wind plays quite a big part. I've never really played there where it's been flat cam and it's, it's, on, it's heathland. It is surrounded by trees on the on the very, very outside of it. But the wind whips across that place. And it definitely plays very, very tricky when the wind comes from a certain direction. Um, you do get a lot of crosswinds, which, you know, you've got to hit it down the side, so you're kind of hitting it at the trouble and trying to fade or draw it off that. The greens are relatively flat they're very very difficult to read because they're very very old greens and they've got lots of little subtle breaks so i mean it is a it's a beautiful course to play Uh, both courses are very very good really fun they have different stretches generally the the old course um tough opening stretch you know and then there's a little bit of a respite in the middle where there is some opportunities. And then the end is one of those places where you can really get it going because there's a couple of par fives. Um, and I would say shorter par fours, but it's really all about position staying out with staying out the bunkers. Cause if you're in the bunker, it's kind of like a, can be kind of like a links golf where it's a, you, it's a shot penalty. So, um, positional golf, once you're off the tee, you're fine. Let's go at it. Let's make birdies. But the minute you're out of position, it's a struggle because you get jumpers out of the heather. The club, the heather just grabs a club, shuts it straight left. So I think you'll see stretches. you see stretches where people just go on nice little runs, like four birdies and six holes, and then suddenly seven, you know, out of nowhere, which is going to add a bit to the drama. But um, a cool golf course that people get to see on TV and always well supported when we play the U.S. Open Qualifier there. Um, people walk with you on the fairway. Um, there's definitely quite a lot of people that come out and watch it. Uh, and it's a, it's a fun course to play. It's one of those kind of courses where you play it and you come off and you're kind of scratching your head and you're like, I shot 73. How did I shoot 73? I want to get back out it tomorrow. <laughs> I see 66, but I can't get to 66. So it's a, it's a fun course. And definitely something that will show off this, the skill of the women because there is ground game, because they're not flying it all the time and, and stopping it as quickly. So they'll have to see where to land it and use the slopes and have that element of action off the teeth.
0: I'm I'm as excited about this tournament as I've been about a golf tournament in a while. I think it's going to be a real showcase for Walton Heath, for Heath Golf, which is a form of golf that we just don't get to see that often on the international stage uh, golf in the Heathlands, you know, we have this great Lynx golf Rota for the open championship, but it's relatively rare that we get to see one of these great Heathland courses like Walton Heath or, or Sunningdale or Swinley forest or, or something like that. And I wish we got to see it more, but this weekend is, is going to be a really, really good moment to uh, to kind of soak that in. Yeah. It'd
1: be, it'd be, it'd be very, very cool. Um, you know, some, we fortunate played some I've played some unbelievable Heathland golf, uh not just in the UK. Um, you know, you go to you go to Holland, uh, you've got Hilver, um Hilversham, uh, mm. which, and you've got Deepan, which I would lo- love to play. Um so there's there's Heathland golf scattered around continental Europe, not just, just the UK. And it's something that maybe people from America aren't used to but if you get the opportunity Please go and play it, and I think you'll get. I think you'll get hooked. It's it's a it's a really cool kind of golf that plays firm and fast, but it's a different experience to links golf. But really, really fun. Um, and like you say, a lot of the courses, a lot of heathland courses were built at that lovely little stage early nineteen hundreds where, archi- the, the architecture was just off the scale, and just makes again that experience and that enjoyment of the golfer. Uh, even greater
0: all right well richie thank you so much for coming on the podcast really enjoyed talking to you we'll have to do it again sometime but uh good luck with the rest of the dp world tour season and uh thank you
1: no thanks thanks for having me um yeah keep up to date with uh fried podcast and um yeah i love uh love listening to it and get a little tidbits and um it's uh it's good fun hopefully i continue to play on to the, the rest of the year and enjoy the golf course as well, which is probably the most important thing. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: This episode of the fried egg podcast was edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One big thing that you can do to support the fried egg is to join club TFE. We have all sorts of things going along with this membership one of which is content. We post new stuff on the Club TFE blog pretty much every day. Every week we have an extensive course profile with photos and an in-depth description of the course. We also have articles on professional golf and other subjects in there. And then with your membership, you get early access to fried egg events, you get an ongoing discount in the pro shop, and lots of other benefits. So to find out more about Club TFE, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and just see what we have to offer there. All right. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon.